Four months after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting that took place on December 14, 2012, uh, my wife Hope and I went to Newtown, Connecticut because uh, my friend Elizabeth Lesser and I had been invited to address a gathering of people who had been at Sandy Hook on that day and other townspeople about the mission of moving forward. The organization that called us there was Sandy Hook Promise, great organization. And a day before addressing the townspeople, I went in to have some long coffee conversations with several people. One was with the Episcopal priest who had been called to the school early on that morning and had stayed all day pastoring with the parents and the teachers and other students. And she told me about it all. I also had a lengthy meeting with uh, three other parents whose children had been killed. Never forget those conversations. One of the mothers of one of the Newtown children who was killed spoke of how just horrible her life had become and how painful every breath was to take. She often stopped and would think for a while and she and I would catch our breaths together. But before she left the restaurant that morning where I was having these conversations, she said that she also knew that within her was an invincible summer. Then she quoted one of Albert Camus' famous letters where he writes, in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. The letter from Camus to a friend goes on to say, and that makes me happy. For it says that no matter how hard the world pushes against me, within me, there's something stronger, something better, pushing right back. A longer context of the letter says, my dear, in the midst of hate, I found there was within me an invincible love. In the midst of tears, I found there was within me an invincible smile. In the midst of chaos, I found there was within me an invincible calm. I realized through it all that in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. In this sermon, and in fact, every sermon I have preached here at St. Luke's. Actually, I've only had one sermon. Um, <laughs> and this is, according to my counting, the 85th preaching of it. <laughs> In every sermon, I've preached one sermon. My goal has been to make the case for the reality that every human being has within them an invincible summer. 
It is the life of grace that is pulsing within every heart. <coughs> we often refer to it here as big love. Today I'm focusing on the word grace because grace communicates that this reality of big love that pulses in the core of every human being is there unconditionally. It was a gift placed in us at our creation. It cannot be earned. It cannot be re reduced in size or in power. And everything that was ever made, according to the first chapter of John, through this big love, grace, or through Christ, or through love, however you translate that word logos, it can't be shrunk or increased in size. It can only be discovered and consented to. And if there is a sense that it grows in people, that sense actually comes not from an actual growth in size or quantity or quality, but from the reality that the person actually is consenting to grace's guidance more and more in every part, in every job, in every relationship of life. We appear to grow in grace because we are making ourselves more available to its working through us. We are disposing ourselves more to it every day. So we could make up a word for the marvelous kind of life we're talking about in this sermon right now. The life that people can live when they discover within themselves Christ's big love by grace as they consent to its guidance and healing more and more. We can call it, in addition to big love, we can call it the grace life. I'm focusing this morning on Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, pointed for today. St. Paul calls those Corinthians companions. Let's pretend he was sending this letter to us at St. Luke's. Companions. St. Luke's companions. We're in this work with you. We beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous grace life, this particular kind of life God has given us. As Christ's co-workers, we're partners in a joint venture with God. It's such a wonderful identity to claim that you are a partner with God. So, Paul continues, we beg of you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Make sure you don't waste this wonderful opportunity God has given you. One working title of this sermon was, Don't Waste Your Grace. For God says, through Isaiah, now is the acceptable time, now is the day of salvation. Another translation, I read about four translations before writing a sermon. It, one translation says, now it's your turn to lend God a hand with the work of bringing new life to the world, and there's not a moment to lose. It's such a wonderful thing to keep in your mind and your heart that God is all about creating a new heaven and a new earth. Behold, I'll make all things new, and that you and I are partners. We are co-creators in making the whole world new, and we're supposed to understand there's not a moment to lose. Now, the last time I was up to bat in this pulpit, 
I tried to point out that our heart orientations literally scientifically, energetically impact the days and the lives of other people in terms of the findings of biology, physics, and science. <coughs> this is now measurable. You can hear all about it at, on the uh, website HeartMath. And I quoted Thomas, and, and, and that is that when you are, when you have uh, all of this alignment with compassion, that you come within eight feet of somebody, you literally change their force field. That's what the science says. That's why Jesus had so much power on people coming in to their force field. And I quoted that last sermon, Thomas Keating's teaching that the heart of the Christian tradition is Jesus' experience of God as Abba or the nurturing parent. God is a nurturing parent to us who is always faithful with mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And that experience, energy, is the force field Jesus emitted, which drew people to him and made them feel safe and seen and soothed and secure and thus healed and redeemed and empowered. I want to suggest that that power in Jesus that is in this morning's gospel lesson, you know, of Jesus being asleep in the boat during a storm when the disciples woke him up and asked him to help them out when the tempest was raging around them, and Jesus said to the storm, cool it, peace, be still, calm down. And the storm obeyed him. You see, that's the power of grace life or big love. When you discover that life within us, that grace life within us, and you consent to its agenda and process for your daily life, that you and I, too, have the power to calm down the other people's storms. You and I have the power to disarm other people and bring peace to their storms and to bring softness to their hard-heartedness. There's a passage in the Old Testament that calls the people of Israel stiff-necked people. It's like they're so stiff-necked in their forgetting that they have the invincible summer within them that they can't crane the neck like a horse cranes the neck when the horse senses the owner coming. These people couldn't, they were so stiff-necked, they couldn't crane their neck toward God. Well, that can change when you've got a big love, grace life person in the midst of you. I'm so grateful to Matt Brown for including just now that hymn that my heart has been singing involuntarily over and over for three weeks now. It's just been it like an earworm. I couldn't get it out. Come, thou fount of every blessing. Tune up my heart to sing thy grace. I thought that we uh, used to take our cars in to have a tune-up, and so I Googled it. And doggone it, if that's not the case, tune up right here. 
Turn up my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Just imagine that from the core of the most powerful energy in the world, there's a stream of energy coming at you nonstop, never ceasing, calling for songs of loudest praise. And then it says, Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, wandering from God's ways, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious love. I changed that word. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander or forget or have amnesia, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love and who loves me. So here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Make my life a grace life. Our mission is to breathe out this marvelous life toward others that God has given us. Paul says, enter into this wide open spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can and with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. Howard Thurman says, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because that's what the world needs. People who have come alive. Um, and my wife's going to critique me for having two or three sermons here. But let me tell you, I'm so excited. <laughs> we can just laugh about that. I only have one more sermon. Um, <laughs> I'm so excited about trees and the science of trees. And there's a great article in the Atlantic Monthly that's coming out in July and August in session saying that all of the discovery of the science of trees that shows how connected they are both leaf to leaf, not only with common species, but with a different kind of species, but also all of the fungi that is connecting all of the roots. So now, science is saying, if you're looking at trees and you look at a singular tree, you've missed the boat. Trees aren't singular, they're plural. It reminds me that Jesus, when he says the kingdom of God is within you and among you, Jesus rarely uses the singular second person pronoun. It's not you, Donna Church apart from Donna and Ed, and Donna and Carol and Ed. Thank God. Jesus doesn't look at us as singular, separate beings, but as a community. I had a conversation with my friend Dan Siegel this past week, neuroscientist and psychiatrist. He's the one who gave me the four S's, seen, safe, safe, soothe, and secure. He says he's been researching all the brain functions that 
when our brains are functioning at the highest, it's when our brains are integrated, all the different parts of our brains and our brains with one another. He's begun, he's begun using the word moe, M-W-E, instead of either me or we, because a human being properly understood is a moe. And the book he's working on now is called Intraconnected rather than Interconnected. I remember we used to have intramural sports at college, and then we'd go down to the baseball field and have intermural sports where we really tried to just crucify the other team. <laughs> He's saying it's wrong to say that we're interconnected because that presupposes that we're individuals connected. Rather, we're intraconnected because we're all a whole and we're playing intramural sports with one another. I love that. Remember, one of my favorite forums has been with Chris Buckley, the KKK guy, who had to get in touch with the fact that his hatred was an addiction. He was addicted to hatred, and his wife called on Arno Michaelis, a Buddhist, who came in and practiced a strategy of unconditional compassion on him, put him in the plane, took him to some places so that he would feel in a community what unconditional compassion's all about. I've told him to put St. Luke's on the, on the list. Bring all the people who are addicted to hate to St. Luke's. We are a community of really trying to embody unconditional compassion. Nevertheless, I asked the Arno Michaelis, the, the, the Buddhist, how he did this. And he said, every time Chris Buckley in his KKK life would start breathing out all this hatred, he said, I would do my breathing meditations and I would breathe in that and then I would breathe out toward him compassion. And he said that disconnected my body from Chris's hostility. That's what St. Paul is calling on you today, you and me today. When you inhale, and Catherine read this beautifully, trials, difficulties, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights. Exhale, patient endurance. When you're inhaling dishonor, unfavorability, people calling you an imposter, an unknown, a person who's on the way out, dying, punished, sorrowful, poor, nothing or nobody. When, when, when you're inhaling that exhale, justice, honor, favor toward the other person, truth, aliveness, rejoicing. So to be fair, all my sermons are about discovering the divine genius within you, which is what my psychiatrist taught me 40 years ago, that you have an inner divine genius. And then part two is always and then go and change the systems around you with that life grace.
So yesterday was Juneteenth. And that brings us to understand about freedom. Finally, the Union Army came to Galveston, which was the outside edges of the Confederate States, two and a half years after Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation to finally say to those people, after they had been used as enslaved persons for two and a half more years, y'all are free. Freedom is the word for America, these people were saying. Now, the reality is (laughs) that we have to make that more than a slogan. We have to make that more than a symbolic gesture. We've got to make progress with economic and structural change. One of the things that breaks my heart is that Atlanta is the 50th in a list of 50 cities in the United States that says that if you were born in poverty, you were going to stay in poverty. St. Luke's has the responsibility and is also already at work to change economic equality in Atlanta so it's no longer the 50th. And we can do that. Beverly Tatum said, Ed, if you're serious about dismantling racism, go to work on economics. Bennett Sims, the bishop who ordained me right here, all those four decades ago, he said it was said that when the army of the Roman Empire had to get baptized, when Constantine had his mystical experience and said, everybody's now going to be a Christian, so y'all all have to be baptized, that the Roman army went in, and as they were being immersed in the river, they held their swords above the water so those swords get, didn't get baptized. You can baptize all of me except my warriorness. And Bennett says, Bennett says, and Episcopalians, when they get baptized, they hold their wallets above the water. (laughs) (laughs) Baptize all of me except my economics. Beverly Tatum says we're not going to get rid of racism until we understand the racism in our economics. Well, it's been five sermons today. Thank God for the invincible summer that is absolutely every one of us. And thank God we are in community encouraging one another to access that and then to use it to change every system around us. Amen.